Thanks for listening to the podcast from Gary Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Wilson, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. And thank you, Nixa, for your uh, grace story, your testimony. We, we train people to uh, give their story, the story of how they came to Christ and how they've been following Jesus in a process that we call life-on-life Life discipleship. And if you'd like to know more about that, you can sign up on the connection card. If you're watching online, you can uh, sign up on the, the uh, Church Center app. And what we do is we teach people how to tell the story that they're the worldwide expert on. And that's your story. You know more about you than anybody else, right? And so we just teach you how to do it and how to uh, tell others that. And so we do appreciate uh, Nixa today sharing her story. Well, we're in part two of our series through the book of Judges. And we've entitled this series, Searching for a True Savior. Because in this book, there are 12 human judges uh, that all uh, make us want something more. Uh, they, they, they save Israel for a season uh, through the power of God, but then as soon as they pass away, we see uh, that the people of God fall right back into sin. And the other thing is each judge consecutively becomes lesser than the previous one. More, more uh, difficulties arise in these judges, and you'll see uh, today we're going to talk in, in chapter 3 about three of the 12 judges in one chapter. And so you'll see what I'm talking about. And when we talk about these judges, we're not talking about black-robed, gavel-carrying judges in a courtroom. We're talking more about uh, someone like a tribal chieftain or a captain, uh, someone who is for a season just kind of God raises them up and they deliver Israel for a season. And so that's what we mean, and that's where the title of the book comes from, Judges. Uh, the key verse in the Bible, it's repeated twice. The key verse in Judges is found in Judges 17 and Judges 21. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I can't think of, uh, of a better description of what we see in our culture today. People just doing what they want to do, uh, not caring if there's a truth uh, not caring if there's a right or a wrong, but we hear people say, well, that's your truth. You know, you do you. And so even though the book of Judges uh, describes events that took place over three millennia ago, human nature really hasn't changed. And so we live in an age today. And I'm not just talking about the people out there. That, yeah, those people out there are just doing whatever they want to do in their own eyes. The church struggles with that too. The people in here struggle with that too because uh, today's message is entitled Forgetful Hearts. And, and we have in our human nature a tendency to forget the things that we're supposed to remember. And the people in Israel forgot the Lord. And even we as the people of God, even though we have head knowledge, we don't forget that God's God. And if we're believers, we don't forget the Lord in the sense of, of intellectual forgiveness or forgetfulness. But we sometimes act, act as if He's not real in our hearts. And so we have forgetful hearts. Tim Keller uh, calls this heart forgetfulness like, uh, it's kind of like uh, on a cold morning how you have a bucket of water sitting outside and an icy uh, surface kind of forms on top of the bucket. And, and uh, we haven't had a lot of, cold, of, of really cold days, but maybe if you have a pet outside, a, a, a dog or something that you keep a pail outside full of water, you'll have to get up in the morning sometimes and, and break the ice in order for the, the, the pet to be able to drink from the water pail. You know what I'm talking about. Well, that's 
kind of like what I'm talking about with heart forgetfulness, the forgetfulness of the heart, that what happens if we don't remember with intent, there's kind of a coldness that comes over our hearts, kind of an icy uh, formation that forms that has to continually be cracked so that our hearts are soft. And this is, um, this is what we call active remembering. There's things that we must constantly remind our hearts of so that we make good decisions because the heart is the seat of the will. It's, the, it's like the driver's seat of how we make decisions in life. And it's where life comes from. As we talked about in our previous series, Dr. Dallas Willard said, we live from our hearts. We live from our hearts. And so we get these icy, forgetful hearts and perhaps, perhaps you know this already, one of the reasons we come together on the first day of the week is to remind ourselves, because we have forgetful hearts, uh, to remind ourselves of what's true so we go back out empowered and strengthened and we break the ice, as it were, that will form during the week over our hearts. So where have you forgotten the Lord today? Where have you forgotten? Where, where do you need to look at your life and go, you know, at the heart level, I haven't really been remembering the Lord as it pertains to this. What's going on? Are you going through a season of trouble? Maybe you're going through a season of trouble. Have you remembered the Lord? Maybe you're going through a season that you might would call it, it feels like warfare. Like maybe it's in your marriage or, or at the workplace or in your neighborhood. Perhaps it's at the school. It just feels like I'm at war. Have, have you remembered the Lord? Have you remembered Him? Uh, or are you trying to do it in your own strength? Um, how about the way you feel about life right now? Are you discouraged? Are you disheartened? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Ask yourself the question, have I forgotten the Lord in my heart? Yeah, I know you know Him in your head, but have, have you forgotten Him in your heart? Maybe you've lost your passion. Have you forgotten the Lord? Well, that's what happened to the Israelites in Judges chapter 3. It says they forgot the Lord. They forgot Him. They didn't forget about Him. They were doing the festivals. They were doing the holidays, you know. They did Passover and Yom Kippur and all. They did those things. They, they went through the motions. They went to, you know, to, they went to the, to the tabernacle. But they, the Bible says they forgot the Lord. I think they forgot the Lord in their hearts. In chapter 3 of Judges, the Israelites were caught up in this cycle of heart forgetfulness. And, and, and they would go through a season then where, where the Lord would bring uh, difficulty into their lives. And then they would, in sorrow, cry out to Him. And then He would deliver them. And this circle, just this cycle just kept going round and round. How, how did they break out? Well, they, they really didn't. That's what we'll find out in the book of Judges. They need a true Savior that will break them out of this cycle of forgetfulness of the heart. But I believe we can because we have the true Savior, Jesus. We, we can break out of this cycle of heart forgetfulness and remember the Lord. And as we look at the text today, I think we'll see three ways that we can do that. Now, we're going to break the text up into two readings. And in the first reading, we'll talk about two insights, two ways that we can remember. And then in the second part, we'll bring a third thought. Well, verses 1 through 11. Let's read that, and then we'll talk about it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And these are the nations. 
the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who live on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And, and I don't, there's a lot of ites there, right? And the daughters, uh, their daughters, they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is God's word. We're looking uh, about three ways to remind our forgetful hearts to always remember the Lord. Here's the first way. We can remember to count it all joy when our faith is tested. We can remember to count it all joy when our faith is tested. Uh, you probably took note of verse 7. It says, they forgot the Lord their God. And as I've, I've already mentioned, this forgetfulness was not head forgetfulness, but forgetfulness of the heart. God was no longer real to them. And they, they begin to live as the world did. Uh, you, you could almost, if we brought it to the church today, there are Christians who live like Christian atheists. They, they, pr they proclaim that they're believers, but you couldn't tell it by their lives nor by their habits. And so that's how Israel was starting to look. Uh, they claimed to be the people of God, but they weren't living like it. And God said they had forgotten him. So we see that in verse 7. And, and then as we think about what the first uh, way that we can remember is to remember what God did for them. You might think, well, this doesn't sound like a gift, but it really was grace. He, he allowed these nations to stay in their land, the ones they were supposed to drive out. He allowed them to stay there in order to test their faith. Look at verse 1. These nations are uh, the ones that the Lord left to test Israel by them. And then again in verse 4, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. See the word test, it's there twice. The word could also be to prove or to assay, as in to give an assessment or to assay uh, gold, if, it's, if there's gold or not. And so, so that's the word test here. God's leaving these nations here, all these ites that we read about, He's leaving them here really as grace, so that the people of God, they have the free will now to choose between the world and the Lord, between the world's gods and idols, or the one God, the one true God, the Lord, and what do they do? They, they flunk the test. They fail the test. But the purpose of him leaving them uh, in this situation was to get their attention so that their faith might be proven 
and it might be perfected. Proven means to prove it true. Perfected means so that it'll grow. This is why God allows testing in our lives today. You might be going, why am I going through this? Why is God allowing this? May I say it's because, perhaps because of this. Untested faith is inauthentic faith. Anybody can be faithful in a season of peace. It's when you go into a season of trouble, a season of warfare, that we find out what's really inside of us. We find out if, we're really, if we really have faith. It's when you lose a loved one. It's when you got bad news from the doctor. It's when your marriage is in trouble or one of your teenagers is in rebellion and you, you can't figure out how to help them. It's times like that that we find out what you really believe. What we really believe is exposed during times of testing. And in that sense, it's the grace of God who wants us to, to recognize our dependence and need for Him. He didn't leave these nations here to punish Israel. He left them there to test their faith. A couple of reasons he gives. One of them is strange at first reading. Verse 2, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. And we, we call the World War II generation, historians call them the heroic generation. They went and won uh, World War II, then they came home and built all these human institutions and factories, and they had children, and they were called the baby boomers and, uh, because they, had, they came home and they built families, and, and they were heroic. And we still look back at those stories, and we enjoy watching movies and reading stories about them because they, they were tried by warfare, and they came home changed. And so, that, so the people that had won the wars that brought the people of Israel into Israel, they've all passed away now. Joshua's passed away. Caleb's passed away. And now there's a generation that doesn't know warfare. Now, now parents and grandparents, you, you pass the baton of faith on to your children, but until they come, they go to the public school. And they hear all these different ideas and these different philosophies that are contrary to what, the way they were brought up. That's warfare. That's warfare for that child, for their mind. There's a war for their minds. There's a, make no mistake, there's a war for your minds and there's a war for your child's mind all the time. Who will you choose? Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of that. And so when we go through a time of testing, it's important that God teaches the next generation how to fight the war. And the war we fight is not the war of, of this world, but it's the war against an unseen world. That's the true enemy. The important thing is to know your enemy. Your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is not that teenager. Teenager, your enemy's not your mom and dad. We can, we can go on. The enemy's the enemy. Ephesians chapter 6 says, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil ru rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. You might be face to face with a human that, boy, you feel like that human's your enemy, and they've hurt you, and they've offended you, or whatever. But I want you to recognize the enemy's the enemy behind all of this. And we're, we're to love our enemies 
the human, but we're to stand firm against Satan, and we're to take up the weapons of warfare that, that uh, are not the weapons of this world, but they're, they're the Word of God, and they're, they're prayer, and they're love, and those are, those are the weapons we're to fight with. We, every generation has to learn warfare. And we learn it by being tested by it. Uh, let me pop this map up to, to give you an idea of all these parasites that we've been talking about. All of these parasites and Philistines and all of them. The, Phili the Philistines are a coastal people, and you'll see uh, people have been saying, like, why do you keep popping these vertical maps up? Why don't you do it horizontal? Well, because Israel's kind of like California. It's a vertical geography. I can't help it. Okay, so I know the podium blocks a little bit. But the Philistines are, 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 are coastal people. Uh, we uh, there's five lords of the Philistines mentioned here. Probably these were people who moved from the island of Crete. They were seafaring. They were also more advanced in their technology. W thus, in a previous chapter, we saw that they had iron chariots. And so that's the Philistines. Now, the rest of these ites, most of them came from a man called Canaan, who was a son of Ham, who was a son of Noah. And so a lot of these other ites, if you go back to Genesis chapter 10 and read about them, they're actually sons of Canaan, and they dwell in this land uh, almost immediately after the flood. And so they've been living here for centuries, but God's given them plenty of time to turn back to Him, and they haven't done it. And now He's bringing the people of God, of Israel, to come in and drive them out of the land. But you can kind of see all where they are. And this is all on the, the west side of the Jordan that they're fighting. And over on the eastern side of the Jordan, you'll see the, the Moabites, the Amorites. You don't see them up here. It's not written down at least, but the Ammonites and Moab and, and uh, the, uh, him and the Ammonites, they all were descended from Lot, the nephew of Abraham. I don't have time to go into all this. I wish I did. But you can read about many of these in the table of nations found in Genesis 10 and 11. Here's where I want to go with this now. We can count it in order to to work with our hearts, our forgetful hearts, we have to say, why don't I feel joy right now? Joy should be one of the, joy should be one of those love, joy, and peace, those first three attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't feel love, if you don't feel joy, if you don't feel peace, it's like warning lights in the dashboard of your car. It's like the car's overheating or it's low on oil. If you don't feel love, joy, peace in your heart, there's something out of alignment between you and God. And so if you're going through a time of testing and you don't feel joy, that should give you a warning because testing shouldn't worry you because you belong to God and God, you can't surprise God. So if you're going through a test... It had to pass through God's fingers to get to you. And he's got you, my friend. And he will not cause anything to do harm to you. He's sovereign over you. And he has a purpose. And it's two parts. He wants to test your faith, to prove it. He wants to prove your faith. And he wants to perfect it, to bring it to its completion. And so testing both proves and perfects. It says in James, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy. That's an accounting term in the Greek. There's two columns. If you know anything about account accounting, if you want to do uh, 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 a value statement, if you want to look and see how, you know, the bank will make you do this before you buy a house. You got your liabilities, you got your assets, and you put them all down and see if it, hopefully it's a positive number at the bottom. And, and so when we have a trial, James says, instead of putting it in the liability column, put it in the asset column, 
count it joy. I know it feels like sorrow, count it as joy. Why? Why? Knowing, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So testing has a perfecting effect on our faith. And we're to count it as all joy, that when I come out the other side of this, my faith will be stronger than it was when I went in. And so I'm going to count it joy because I trust the Lord. And it also proves your faith, 1 Peter chapter 1, in this you rejoice, there's that word rejoice, joy, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so the testing of your faith from God's perspective has the dual impact of proving and perfecting. Therefore, we count it joy. He leaves certain things in your life in order to prove and protect and, and, and perfect your faith. Will you count it joy? Counting it joy is one of the ways we crack the icy forgetfulness of the heart. And say, God, I don't know why I'm going through this. It sure hurts. But I trust you. And, and, and I'm going to get my joy from you, not from my circumstances. That's the first way that we remind our forgetful hearts to remember the Lord. Here's the second. Here's the second. We can remember to let godly sorrow lead us to repentance. The truth is, most of us will never admit we're wrong and really want to change until we hit bottom, until we, till we get sorry. Now, here's what, here's what happened with Israel here. We see, we see that, um, starting in verse 8 and following, that they had done evil in the sight of the Lord, that they had been given their daughters into marriage with these foreign peoples, and they'd been taking daughters into their family and getting married their sons off, that they were worshiping, in verse 7, worshiping the Baals and the Asheroth. They forgot the Lord, so they failed the test. And so the Lord was angry. It says his anger was kindled. He had a fiery anger towards him. Why? Well, if he didn't love him, he wouldn't be angry. This is a righteous anger. He called them to be his people, and he would be their God. That's a monogamous relationship he's after. And they're committing adultery, as chapter 2 said, against the Lord. They're, they're whoring themselves, it said in chapter 2, by taking on these other false gods. And he's angry about it. So what does he do? Does he strike them all dead? No. He lets them have what they've asked for. He allows them to be enslaved by those things they've chosen. And so, therefore, it, it says he, he sold them into the hand of Kushan Rishathame. Now, that name, Kushan Rishathame, means double wicked. Rishathame means double wicked, double evil. Probably a man from Cush, which would be modern-day Ethiopia. And we have some record in, Egypt, in Egyptian history that there was a man who came up from uh, Africa and overthrew Egypt and, and, and actually overthrew all of Mesopotamia. And so that's this Kushan uh, uh, Rishathim, uh, king of Mesopotamia, twi twice wicked Kushan. And so he's, he's the greatest king that any of the, the judges fight against. So the very first judge is really the best judge of the twelve, that's Othniel, and he goes up against the, this king of Mesopotamia. Now Mesopotamia is a description of the Fertile Crescent. 
which is most of the Middle East that follows along the Euphrates and Tigris rivers and then up through uh, the Sea of Galilee and down the Jordan River Valley all the way over into the, to the, to the River Nile. So pop this map up and this is the Fertile Crescent, right? And so from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea, and over here is all desert, Saudi Arabia, uh, the, uh, this, this, this is all desert right in here. But you can see the Euphrates and the Tigris, and down through Israel, through the land of Canaan, over here. So this was, this was Kushan Rishathaim was king of Mesopotamia. And, and how long did they serve him? Eight years, it says in verse 8. They didn't cry out to the Lord. It says they cried out in verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out, well, it took them eight years to cry out. They didn't cry out after one year of this. They didn't cry out after two. They didn't cry after four. They didn't cry out after six years. It took them eight years. You ever have a friend that's going through something, and they just keep making the same dumb mistake over and over again, and you think to yourself, well, maybe, if they, finally, maybe they hit bottom this time. They've lost their family. They've lost their job. Maybe they've, maybe they've hit bottom, because maybe if they hit bottom, they'll finally look up. You ever say that? I know you've never said it about yourself, but we say that about other people, don't we? Maybe they hit bottom, they'll finally look up. But some people, it takes them eight years of bottom before they'll look up. Some people are hard-headed. they got to hit eight bottoms. You thought that was bottom? No, there's another one. Oh, no, there's another one. Wait a minute, there's another one. Some of us are hard-headed. Took them eight years. They finally cried out to the Lord. The minute they did, notice the time word, but when, but when, but when. When they did, when they cried out, God, but God, but God, but God. See, they finally looked up. They finally hit bottom. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. My goodness. Why didn't they cry out sooner? I don't know. Why didn't you? And they raised up Othniel. Now, Othniel... Othniel's a man. He is the man. He's got the name and the pedigree. Othniel. If you see a Hebrew name that's got L in it, that's, that means God. L is a shortened version of Elohim. It means God. And so Othni, what does that mean? It means lion. His name means the lion of God. He's got the name. He's got the pedigree. He's the nephew of Caleb. He's the nephew. He's from the tribe of Judah that carries a banner with a lion on it. This is the lion of God from the lion of Judah. He's got the name and the pedigree. I mean, isn't that what made him the great judge? No, actually, that's not what qualified him at all. It wasn't his name nor his pedigree. What qualified him was, first of all, God raised him up. That's the first qualification. The people didn't choose Othniel, although they probably would have. He certainly had the name and the pedigree. But God raised him up. And then second, and perhaps most important of all, verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord was on him. Man, whoo. Yeah. The Ruach Yahweh was on him. The Spirit of, of, of the Lord was on this man. This is the greatest judge of the twelve, and he defeats the greatest enemy of the twelve, the king of Mesopotamia. Uh, we can see here this cycle that repeats over and over again. And so here we see the first example of it in the story. Let me pop this up on the screen. This is going to be helpful for you. You're going to see this throughout the book of Judges. The, the people rebel and they sin. And then the Lord 
turns them over to servitude. He allows them to have what they ask for, and they begin to serve false gods. They serve, they fall into servitude. So, so they rebel and they sin. God responds and gives them that. And then, then, the, then they cry out in sorrow. They repent. And then God raises up a deliverer, and he saves them. And it just goes round and round and round and round and round and round like going down the toilet it just gets worse and worse they rebel worse every time they have more forgetfulness every time who's going to break this cycle these judges can't seem to break the people of Israel out of it we need a better judge we need a, a true savior well what was wrong with Othniel he did it all perfect I mean he did it he went out to war he defeated they had rest for 40 years that's a generation well, he had one problem. That's the only thing I can find wrong with Othniel. He had, he had a problem, and, and you have the same problem. He died, and one day you will too. The Scripture says, for it is appointed unto man. <laughs> right? There's a day where this body won't survive. There's a day that God already knows about where, where you'll pass from this world. That's the problem with all these judges. They all had a tendency to die. We need a Savior that has eternal life, one that can save us unto eternity. And we have one in Jesus. I think the book of Judges was written to the people of Israel to give them a hunger and a thirst for something better and also to prepare them for someone who would come like a judge, like a Savior, but better so that they, these judges continue to fail them, but then they are pressing in, wanting to know more. See, here's the thing about sorrow. Sorrow can be a gift if it causes you to drive to your knees and you actually look up. In the book of, of 2 Corinthians, he says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry. Paul says, I'm not rejoicing because you were in sorrow, but that your sorrow led to repentance. That's what I'm rejoicing about. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us from in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. God, he wasn't putting them in servitude for eight years to punish them. He was trying to get them on their knees so they would look up. Because godly sorrow causes you to say, I was wrong. Worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry I got caught. That's worldly sorrow, which doesn't save you and it doesn't bring you to repentance that just means you're sorry you got caught that yeah the world gets sorry they try to figure out a way to squirm out of it so they don't get caught the next time but the person that believes in the lord says i'm sorry that i offended you god i'm sorry that i didn't do what you told me to do i brought this on myself lord forgive me help me to get back on the right path that's godly sorrow and it leads to repentance Stephen's witness before his accuser goes like this. He says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Listen, the minute, did you notice that the minute after eight years, it took them eight years, but the minute they cried out to the Lord, the Lord delivered them. What's keeping you from crying out to the Lord today? Why wallow in your sorrow when all you have to do is look up. Don't wait eight years. Don't wait eight minutes. Cry out to the Lord. Will you do it? That's the second way we remind our forgetful hearts. 
is that we remind ourselves that sorrow is even a gift from the Lord to cause us to cry out to Him. And then let's keep reading and we'll make a, a final observation. We're at verse 12. We're going to be talking about two more judges. The first is Ehud. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, there's that, there's that cycle. Here it goes again. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms, that's Jericho. That's what the word Jericho means. It means the city of Palms. That's the city that Joshua had defeated when they blew the trumpets and shouted and marched around it and the walls came down. Now here they've lost it to Eglon, king of Moab. What a punch in the mouth. My goodness. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. They're getting harder to learn. They're getting harder to get to. Not eight, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out, well, finally, to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, a son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud, Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. A cubit's uh, distance from your elbow to, to the tip of your finger. So it was about that long. Made himself a, a sword. And, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself, speaking of, of Ehud, turned back at the idols near, near Gilgal. And he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof, roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached from his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And, and the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed around over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them and when he had gone the servants came and and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked they thought well surely he's re relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber plus they may have smelled something just this is a pretty graphic story right and they waited until they were embarrassed but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber they took the key and opened the door and there lay their lord dead on the floor Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down from, uh, with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And then we have one verse for the third judge. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, 
who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Well, Gary, what are you going to say about this one? What are you going to say about this part of the story? That's what you're thinking, right? Well, here's, here's what I'm thinking. We can remember that God's true Savior came in weakness. These are some unexpected saviors, wouldn't you agree? These are some unexpected dudes saving. I mean, it's kind of like reading something uh, or watching a modern movie. Like the first guy, Ehud, he's kind of like a concealed carry assassin in a James Bond movie. I mean, he even went to Q and fashioned his own weapon that's concealed. If it were a James Bond movie, I would probably name it Lefty Kills Hefty or something like that. <laughs> and then the second story of Shamgar, we only have one verse. All we know is, is he's a son of Anath. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Maybe we would call that Conan the Barbarian, except with an ox goad instead of a big sword. I don't know, but, but these are some strange stories. It just reminds us that God uses ordinary people to, to accomplish extraordinary things. He uses the weakness of people often to accomplish extraordinary things. It makes a big deal about Ehu being a lefty. makes a big deal about that. And I think it's because in those days, and still even in those, those lands today, if you go to the Middle East or you go to a Muslim country and you go as a missionary, they instruct you don't touch people with your left hand because they view it as the unclean hand. It's the hand that they're taught to use when they go to the bathroom or pick their nose or some other thing. But the right hand is the strong hand. It's the hand of God. It's the hand of faith. The left hand is the underhanded hand. It's the hand of weakness. It makes much of that to explain why they allowed Ehud entrance into the king's private quarters. They probably patted him down. I mean, the good servants, the attendants would have patted him down, and they would have expected him to be right-handed, so they would have really worked over the left leg because you would keep the sheath of a right-handed sword on the left side. And, but no, he, he was a lefty. He hit it on his right thigh, and he built it just so it, was, so it would fit, and he had it under his robe. I don't know how he got it out quick, but he had figured it out. And so they patted him down. Some suspect, because of the nature of the Hebrew description of his left use of his hand, it doesn't use the word left. It actually says he had a bound or impeded right hand, which is translated then into the English left-handed. And so some say, well, maybe he was handicapped, and that's, that's really why they, well, he's handicapped. Let him on in there to talk to the king. I did some more research on this because I couldn't leave it alone because I knew that in chapter 20 of Judges, there's 700 Benjamites who were left-handed, and I thought, well, surely there weren't 700 handicapped Benjamites. This must mean something else. It's not a handicap. What is it? I did further research on it because that's the way I roll. I'm sorry, and I've got to tell you, once I know it, I can't keep it to myself. I find it interesting because in the Septuagint, which is the ancient translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, when they encountered this bound in the right hand, they translated it. Maybe you recognize this. They translated as he was ambidextrous. And then I did further research, because I, I couldn't leave it alone, that perhaps the Benjamites were known for binding the son's right hand in order to make them ambidextrous so they could fight equally with both hands. Wow. You read it in the Bible, the Benjamites, they could fight with both hands. That was... That was that was just amazing. Did you know only 10% of the population in America is left-handed? 
And more males are left-handed than females. I told you I did a lot of research. I'm sorry, I'll stop. If you're left-handed today, you're not underhanded. I'm not saying that. But in Bible times, it was kind of a metaphor for something else. That God would use a lefty was unexpected and really like saying he would use somebody like that. It was like that. And what I want to say to you that he points to a southpawed savior named Jesus. Because he's unexpected. Born to the Virgin Mary. Born in a stable. He doesn't have, wow, that's, that's how we're going to get a Savior? Born in a stable? Just on the, born in, raised in Nazareth uh, along the Sea of Galilee to a carpenter? I mean, like his upbringing. And then, and then the, way he win, the way he wins the victory is what? Not with an ox goad which is unexpected, like a stick? No, with a cross. And how did he win? He died? That's how he won the victory? He died? See, only, only believers get this. Only, only we recognize that, that God sent a, the true Savior in weakness and took our sin, our death, our separation from God so that we could have His strength. He came in, in this unexpected way. And so even these unexpected, these uh, unlikely saviors in their own way point to the most unlikely savior of all, Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the universe, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross and was raised from a grave and lives today. It's our story because we believe in Him, but the world looks at it and goes, that's a crazy story. Not to us. And that's why all these judges are here. They're here to prepare the people of Israel to know how to look for the true Savior when He comes. Shamgar, uh, I'll pop this map up really quick. Uh, this kind of shows where these, these judges are. Shamgar's, uh, we believe, from the tribe of Naphtali, which would be way up in the north. We're not sure he fought there. We don't know where he fought because the Philistines are down here. So maybe he was down here fighting. I, I think that's most likely. But we can find that the, the, the town of Beth Anath is in Naphtali, and he was a son of Anath which makes sense. Maybe he was from the house of Anath. So that's how we got that. Uh, we can see that Ahud was fighting right here, and he was fighting against the Moabites and the Amorites and the Ammonites. They all came across, and they conquered Jericho, the, the, the city of Palms. And they also had set up idols at Gilgal right here, which was the place that means God rolled away the, uh, the sin and the stink of Egypt off the people, and they recommitted themselves to the Lord, and it was the base of operations for Joshua, and they've set up idols there. And did you see that that's where Ehud turned around? He walked out, and he got to Gilgal, and he saw those idols, and I think the Lord got a hold of him, and he goes, I'm going back. And he goes back in and kills that king of, of, of Moab. And I think we have that graphic story because... They came back, and Ahu told the men of Israel, the, the tribe of Ephraim, he came back and told them, that man wasn't nothing. He's a big old fat guy. I killed him and left the sword inside of him. And I left the smell there, too. And, you know, the ladies, I know you don't like this part of the story probably, but the guys are all sitting there going, I like this part of the story. 
because from the time we were little boys, we liked this kind of story because we like warfare stories. We like hero stories. And some of the ladies do too. I don't mean to discount that. But I think he came back and told the men this because it caught them like, oh man, we, we going, he, you did this by, oh, the Lord did it. We're going to, and they killed 10,000 Moabite warriors that were in Jericho and Gilgal and they drove them back and wiped them out. I think the story was in there for humorous reasons, which is why I entitled it Lefty Kills Hefty. I think they told the story to, in, to, to encourage Israel to go to war, to give, them, to give them courage. Well, I need to close. God chooses the weakness of this world in order to prove himself. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You don't boast in the ox goad. You don't boast in the self-made double-edged sword. You boast in the Lord because he's the one that gives us the victory. He comes in weakness. And so we are challenged to, to live in weakness towards him and recognize I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I learned, I learned that it's in my weakness that I'm strong. And as the Apostle Paul, who prayed three times, we don't know what this was. He prayed three times, God, take this thorn in the flesh from me. And he begged God three times, and God finally answered him after praying three times. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And, and Paul says, okay then, therefore I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. I'm just going to celebrate my weaknesses. Because I know this, for the sake of Christ, when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't have, listen, we have a tendency to hide our weaknesses so that we, you know, that's why we have a, a site called Facebook so that we can do all those special things. Uh, we can take those photography uh, apps that we have and, and make ourselves look really good. And we have that so that other ladies look at it and go, oh, you're so beautiful. And the guys, you know, we suck our bellies in and we get that best picture up there. Oh, you're looking so handsome. That's why we have Facebook. That's why we have things like that because we hide our weaknesses. But Paul said, you know what I'm finally getting? If I'll just be real before the Lord and real before God's people, then they'll see, they'll see Jesus in me. As long as I'm bragging on myself, they just see me. But once they realize that God could take a wretch like me, that God could take my story and turn it around like this, and I don't know what your story is today, but the weaker you are, the more messed up your situation, the more likely God can do wonderful things with you. But the more you think you got it together, the less likely the Lord can use you. For when I'm weak, Paul says, then I'm strong in the Lord. We have a kind of heart amnesia, this kind of heart forgetfulness that we have to be reminded. That's why we come together every week, isn't it? to remind ourselves and to crack the ice that forms on our hearts and to be reminded of who we are in Jesus, that when we go through testing, we can count it joy. Are you going through testing today? Put it in the joy column. 
That when we're sorrowful, when we're down, we've, we've lost someone or we're going through a season where something's not going the way we want it to and it's just hurting us, we can recognize it had to pass through God's fingers first. What do I need to change in my life about the way I face this? And then when you're going through a season where you feel just weak, like, how am I, I going to face this? Recognize, oh, that's perfect. That's where God really likes to work, where you can really count on a true Savior named Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, first of all, for that person that's here today that's never given their life to you. And I'm talking about an act of the will. I'm not talking about head knowledge. Yeah, I know who Jesus is. I know what he did. I'm talking about heart knowledge. Have you ever given your life to Jesus as an act of the will? You can do it right now, right in your seat. You can pray it right now, just expressing your faith. Pray like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were raised from the grave, that you live today. Come and live in me. I give you my life. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to follow you. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. If you're praying that prayer, believing, He'll save you. He'll become your true Savior, and He'll be your Lord, and He'll make you a child of God, and you'll, you'll change. You'll see life change, and you'll see your faith grow, but you can start today. Others are here, and you've done that. You've made Jesus your Lord and Savior, but you're going through some testing right now, and you've been beat up. You feel sorrowful. Maybe you even feel like giving up. You feel weak. But don't do it. Cry out to the Lord. Would you do it? Would you cry out to the Lord? And say, Lord, I need your help. And know this, when you ask for help, he hears. Oh, we serve a God who hears. Cry out to the Lord, and he'll give you help. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.